This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. It's hard to believe, but our Lottie Moon in gathering service is less than a month away <laughs> on December the 5th. Um, it is that time. And so uh, our goal uh, as a church is $60,000, every penny of which will go to the field to, to keep our IMB missionaries on the field, to, to send uh, missionaries to, to join their ranks. Um, and so be in prayer for our, our gospel workers around the world and, and in prayer for our church uh, as we, we move towards that special service on December the, the 5th. All right, so we're, we are in Esther. If you are new today, uh, we have been walking through uh, the book of Esther. I know some of you just got back from a trip and seen Esther uh, dramatically portrayed, so you should really be teed up uh, for today. And so we're going to be in chapter 7 of Esther uh, today, which really is about a tale of two kings. Esther chapter 7. You can find that um, in your copy of, of God's Word. Um, and so let's look at that together. Esther chapter 7, and we're going to look at that whole chapter today. Let's begin with verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went to where they, were drinking, where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows, 75 feet tall, at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Father, we, we thank you for the amazing ways that we have seen you work 
in this book, and it is such an encouragement that just as we sang a while ago, that in, in all things, you are, you are working in the lives of your people for your glory and for our good. And we have, we have seen throughout Esther how you are constantly at work behind the scenes in our, our lives and how you are putting the right people in the right places, the right times, and how the circumstances of our lives are woven together in a tapestry that, that you have designed. And so we pray that we would be encouraged by your word today, that our faith would be strengthened by your faithfulness to your promises. And the greatest promise is that your, your son was going to, to, to come. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen. The Green Mile was a, a movie that came out in 1999, starring Tom Hanks. It was about a group of prisoners on death row. And, and it was one of the things in our culture that, that really kind of popularized the, the phrase, dead man walking, which kind of, it, it, dead man walking is a phrase that kind of refers to someone who is still alive, but who's, who is doomed and whose days are numbered. Well, by the time we get to the end of chapter 6 of Esther, Haman is the very definition of a dead man walking. And, and, and just to kind of uh, refresh you on the, uh, the basic plot here of Esther, Haman was sort of like the Hitler of his day. Uh, he had, had, had devised this, this plan to annihilate the Jewish people of Persia, but, but what is happening is that Haman's whole evil plot against the Jews is now coming down on his own head, and he is discovering the truth of one of the Jewish scriptures in Proverbs 26 and verse 27, which says, the one who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone, it will come back on him. That's exactly what is happening to Haman. So what we're going to do today is kind of walk through chapter 7 rather quickly, and then we're going we're gonna to get some, some takeaways from not only chapter 7, but from uh, Esther uh, as a whole. Let's look first of all at verses 1 and 2. It says, The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Now, this is the third time that King Ahasuerus, or maybe in your, book, your Bible it says uh, King Xerxes, that was his, his Greek name, same guy. Um, this is the third time that he's essentially offered Esther a blank check. You know, whatever you desire, whatever you ask, it will be done. And every time that he makes this declaration, it makes it less likely that he can go back on his word. Ancient Persia was an honor-shame culture, just like many cultures around the world today. The worst thing that you can do in an honor-shame culture is, is lose face. 
Well, and, and uh, you know, you want to you you do everything you can to save face. Well, every time that the king makes this declaration, it makes it less likely that he can go back on his word because if he does, he will lose face. Well, Esther knows that. That's one of the reasons why she didn't sort of just pour out her request the, the first time that he said this. Esther has been given uh, God's wisdom, clearly. She's sort, of, she's sort of playing the king the way that you have to catch a trophy fish sometimes. You have to kind of let him, let him take it. When my dad was teaching me to, to catch certain kinds of fish, you know, we'd see the line kind of uh, going out and he would say, don't, you know, not yet, not yet. Let, let it go, let it go, let it go. Set the hook, right? And so that's kind of why she doesn't just immediately come out with her re- request because she knows every time he makes one of these declarations makes it less likely he can go back on his word. But now the time has come to set the hook. Verses three and and four, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire, for my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. So finally, Esther just pours it out there. She reveals what her request is, and and she's also revealing that she is Jewish. Remember, he doesn't even know until this moment that his own wife is Jewish. And even though we've seen that Esther had been given, given favor with him, we have also seen throughout this book that this king was incredibly volatile and impulsive, and unpredictable. You just didn't know whether, you know, you could be his best friend one moment, and he could be having your head chopped off the, you know, the, the, the next. And, and other historical sources outside of Scripture confirm this. The great ancient historian Herodotus tells a story about uh, King Ahasuerus that uh, one time one of his one of his, his friends, or at least the guy he thought he was a friend, a guy named Pythias, came before the king, and, and Pythias asked uh, King Xerxes if, if one of his sons could be exempted from, from military service. And Pythias had reason to believe that King Ahasuerus would respond affirmatively. After all, Pythias had done all kinds of favors for him. But Herodotus tells us that King Ahasuerus responded by having Pythias' son cut into two pieces and then having the Persian army march between the two pieces. I mean, this is who we're dealing with here. And so even even at this point, Esther is revealing this at at the risk of her life. But something has been happening in the background, right? The Jewish community has been praying. They've been praying that God would would turn, even though this king clearly doesn't know God, they have been praying that God would work upon his heart and and, and turn his, his heart 
to give favor to Esther and to the Jewish people. And that is exactly what is happening. Verse 5, King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? <laughs> now, at this, at this point, Esther must have been tempted to say kind of like, you know, the prophet Nathan said to David, Thou art the man, because King Ahasuerus is the one who had signed off on Haman's evil plot to annihilate the Jewish people. It would have gone nowhere without his endorsement of it, and he had done that. But she wisely keeps the focus on Haman here. Verse 6, Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. I think there might have been a little puddle around the bottom of his uh, shoes at this point. He is white as a sheet. Verse 7, the king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Now, this is interesting that Ahasuerus reacts by going into another room He's going to do something terrible to Haman. That's not in doubt, but he has some thinking to do. After all, he's the one who had signed off on Haman's plot of mass murder of genocide against the Jewish people, and everybody knows it. These letters have been sent to all the cities and provinces of Persia with, with Ahasuerus' endorsement. Everybody knows this. And so he's got he's to figure out some, some pretext for doing away with Haman. Well, Haman just serves that up on a silver platter. Verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the king while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You know, it's like one of those mob movies when the guy gets in the car in the front seat and somebody in the back seat covers their face. It's never a good thing at that point. Bad news at that point. Well, Ahasuerus probably knows uh, Haman's not attempting anything uh, sexual against Esther at this point, but <laughs> appearances are enough, and he, has his, he, he now has his, his reason for killing him. The only question is how. Verses 9 and 10. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Perfect, poetic justice. And Haman discovers the truth of another Jewish scripture, Psalm 7 and verses 14 through 16. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his 
head. Now let's, let's look at some biblical principles that we can draw from this chapter and from what we've seen so far in Esther. The first one is about God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So throughout the book of Esther, we see this interplay between the, the sovereignty of God on one hand and, 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 and human responsibility on the other. We see God working sovereignly in all of these things to make these things happen. But we also see him working through human beings at certain points. Human beings who are stepping out in faith and doing courageous things. So on the one hand, we see human beings taking courageous actions. Mordecai refusing to dishonor God by bowing before Haman. Mordecai getting word to Esther about the plot against the Jews and asking her to intercede on the part of the Jewish people. And then Esther doing that. Esther going before the king to intervene for her people at the risk of her own life. At the same time, we see that human beings are utterly dependent on, on God's sovereign work for their deliverance. We see God arranging for this Jewish girl to rise to the position of Queen of Persia so that she will be in a position to give help to her people. We see God putting Mordecai in the exact place at the exact moment to overhear the plot of these two would-be assassins against the king. We see God turning the heart of the king to give Esther favor before him. We see God keeping the king awake at night and then putting it in his mind to request that these historical records be brought to him. And when those records are brought to him, they turn to the exact page where it was recorded that Mordecai had saved his life. So throughout the book, we see God working sovereignly, but also at points working through people who are willing to do the right thing and take action and step out in faith. And there are implications for us in all of this. There are implications for our spiritual growth. There, there is no progress in the Christian life, no progress in our sanctification without the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the scripture teaches that the Spirit works through means. We're commanded to, to, to dig into our Bibles so that we know the promises of God and that the Spirit works through God's Word, which is the sword of the Spirit. We're commanded to pray and trust God. We're commanded to be a part of a church family and to attend corporate worship like this faithfully. It's an essential means of God strengthening us and working in our lives. So there's God's sovereignty in our spiritual growth, but he also calls us to, 
to, to do some things. He works through some things. The Spirit works through means. We see this in evangelism. Only God and his sovereignty can open the hearts of people to repent and believe in Christ. But God works through the proclamation of the gospel. As we tell people about Christ, he's commanded us to to share the gospel with people and to invite them to come to settings like this where they can hear the good news of the gospel. And so only a sovereign God can open hearts to repent and believe, but God draws people to himself through people like you and me sharing the gospel with people. I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this in our, our lives. I mean, if we're, we're seeking, you know, vocational direction, you know, well, I mean, ultimately, we're dependent upon God to open those doors, but God expects us to knock on those doors, right? You know, to network with people and talk to people in our field and develop an attractive resume, you know, and, and, and on and on and on. There are so many examples of that in life. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. And most of us are wired and kind of, we lean in maybe one direction or the other. Some of us, maybe you lean too passive, and we're like, well, you know, if it's meant to be, then, uh, you know, God will make it happen. And we don't, we're not active enough in, take, in using the means and taking the actions that God's called us to take. Others of us uh, tend to lean towards, uh, in, we immediately go to, you know, a three-step plan <laughs> without prayer, <laughs> without depending upon God, and biblically, It's not an either or, it is a both and. God is sovereign and yet God has called us to step out in faith and take action. That's one principle that we see here. Second, God's faithfulness to his promises. God's faithfulness to his promises. Throughout the book of Esther, kind of a touchstone verse for us has been Genesis 12, 2, and 3. Genesis 12 and verses 2 and, and 3, which says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We cannot understand the book of Esther without understanding God's promises to Israel, God's promises to the Jewish people. God has promised to to bless them and to protect them because ultimately God says, I'm gonna bless the whole world through you, through this people, the Jewish people, all peoples are going to be blessed because Christ was going to come from that people. So Haman, in, in, in taking on the Jewish people, is really taking on the God of the Jewish people. Never a smart idea, because God is faithful to his promises. 
And God's faithfulness to his promises is what strengthens our faith. We learn to trust God more the more that we understand that God himself is faithful to his promises. Why does Mordecai refuse to bow before Haman? Because he trusts that God will protect him. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Why does Mordecai say this to Esther in chapter 4 and verse 14? He says to Esther, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. Why does he say that? Because Mordecai believes the promises, like Genesis 12, 2, and 3, that God has made to the Jewish people, that they would be preserved by God. And if God didn't, if she didn't allow God to use her, he'll just work through other means, because God is faithful to his promises. And we can trust that God is going to be faithful to his promises. So if, if we are uh, attacked or threatened with attack for our own faith, we can do the right thing because we trust that God is going to be with us. We trust promises like Joshua 1 and verse 9 where God says, Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In our process of sanctification, as believers, you know, as we continue to battle sin and struggle with sin, and sometimes it can be so discouraging in the Christian life because, you know, we feel like we're, we're taking, you know, we take a couple of steps forward and then we take a step back, and it just, uh, it can be, it, we can get so discouraged in the, Christian, in the Christian life. But listen, God has promised us Promises like Philippians 1.6 that, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is not done with you. You know, in the, in the church, we can be in, encouraged. I mean, even though there are so many things in our culture that are against the church, the, the whole drift of the culture, the whole uh, march toward secularism and there's so many things that we could be discouraged about um, in, in, a, in a culture like this but you know what we can be encouraged because the culture doesn't build the church <laughs> Jesus builds the church and Jesus says I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it sometimes it can be so discouraging in missions I mean when you look at the the, the things that uh, that we deal with around the world uh, that missionaries are dealing with and as we send missionaries and, and sustain them on the field, all of the obstacles that are out there from totalitarian governments around the world who don't want us there uh, to dysfunctional governments that make it uh, so, uh, so uh, hard uh, to, uh, to, to, to have people there and hard for the people who, 
who are there and that lead to such dysfunction and violence and, and things like, like that, like we've seen in Haiti, for instance, over the, the past year. When you think about people around the world that are just so trapped and caught in, in, in thousands of years of false religion and all of the family pressure that just goes with that. I mean, there are so many things that could discourage us in, in the cause of missions around the world. You know what can encourage us? The promises of God. Because what is God's promise? Revelation 7, 9, and 10 tells us that there will be a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language ultimately standing before the throne and before the Lamb and giving praise to Jesus. Sometimes the course of history and the events around us can, can just seem so discouraging, but what can encourage us? It's the promise of God that history is going somewhere. And we know where, where it's going ultimately. Habakkuk 2 and verse 14 says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. God is faithful to his promises. And that can encourage us. And that strengthens our faith. Third, the story points to the Savior. In a way... Esther is a tale of two kings, King Ahasuerus and King Jesus. And those two kings could not be more different. We've seen that King Ahasuerus summoned his bride to a banquet in order to exploit her. King Jesus summons his bride, the church, to a banquet, the great marriage feast of the Lamb, where he will lavish his love and grace and mercy upon us. What we see throughout the book that, that King Ahasuerus is so disconnected. Isn't that one of the things that stands out about him in the book? He's so disconnected from what's going on outside of his own royal courtroom. King Jesus is intimately connected in the lives of his people, down to the smallest details of our lives. Jesus says that even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus is intimately connected with every need, every detail in our lives. King Ahasuerus would chop the heads off of people who came before him uninvited. King Jesus invites us to come before him 24-7 and to pour out our requests before him. Our king delights in hearing from us and answering our prayers. King Ahasuerus signs off on a death sentence for an entire people sentencing them to, to condemnation. King Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John three sixteen and, and 17, for God so loved the world, 
in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you know King Jesus? Let's pray together. If you do not know this king of love, he invites you to know him. Salvation is offered as a free gift, but it's like any gift. It only becomes ours when we receive it. And the way that you receive King Jesus is to repent and believe. Turn to him. Turn away from trying to do life your own way apart from God. Turn to Jesus and trust in him. Trust that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he reigns now as king. He is risen. He lives. Turn to King Jesus. Welcome him into your life. Receive him as a savior and Lord and king. Take your hands off of the controls of your life and give them to Christ. Put yourself in his hands today. He invites you to know him. Father, as we respond now to the message of the gospel, Lord, we pray for anyone here, we pray for anyone who is watching, who doesn't know Christ. Lord, would you do a miracle? Would you bring new life? Lord, would you open hearts to repent and believe? Would you make scales fall from, from eyes to be able to see the love of Jesus and to know him? And Father, for, for, for those of us who are, who, are, who are in Christ, Lord, may we act on our faith. Lord, may we allow ourselves to be used of you the, the way that we see uh, Esther and, and, and Mordecai stepping out in faith. Lord, give us courage to do that. Give us courage to exercise our, our faith, to, to take the actions that you are calling us to, to take to be used of you. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.